these people fashukhlun and uh, it's like the whole country got together to it's like a giant therapy session so everyone's cards are out on the table and people are discussing their genuine problems and i think that is for the first time something that none of us have ever seen here before and you know other movements felt very almost limited or small this feels everywhere like you feel like wow there are like-minded people across this country who are brave who are peaceful who are uh, well informed and dying to be even better informed um, and it's infectious Change will come, but not in the short term. Mm. I think in the short term, the the street, the people will hold politicians more accountable, mm. and the politicians can get away with less. I think some people will try to uh, get uh, politicians will try to scapegoat some, yeah. try to make this go away. But I think revolutions take decades. Decades. You know, yeah. I mean, some take 20 years, some take 10 years. And what's happening today is an incredibly inspiring and an, an inspired and informed uprising mm-hmm. that coincides with an economic collapse. It's scary, but it brings us back to basics and gives us the opportunity to rebuild. Right. But it's going to be a struggle. But I, I think that the long-term prospects, having had this movement, um, are better than they ever could have been before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, especially since the progress we've made in just, we were just saying, 38 days. I mean, we're talking about years, and then we're talking about what has actually happened in this past 38 days. Um, And then one can say, like, okay, so where did we, what have we arrived to? We already have uh, the the government resigned. Um, You have this great social movement that has brought people together from every single background that you can think of. And I think even though it's going to take a long time, um, and let it take a long time, but let it be done the right way. And I think that... um, it, I think that's the direction it's going in right now. So these are unique circumstances that the economy is crashing or has actually crashed and that everyone is sharing the pain together and that there's also hope on the horizon. I don't think these things have ever lined up properly in, in at least modern history. But I, I sense that there's genuine optimism and that this time around there will be change. You said the Prime Minister resigned, which is a tangible result. It's also 38 days of not much else happening. Mm. I just, I mean this not, not, as, not to be hard on the protests, mm. but in terms of just longevity. The second month, we're entering potentially six, seven weeks of this, could last longer. Mm. Do you think that momentum naturally dwindles? The fact that this does take a long time. Or do you see the other thing happening, that people will stay determined until it changes. Well, I think the, the, the quick progress that happened was mm. for every individual person mentally. Mm. So, yes, we're talking about a long period of time, but the rapidness of this movement that has uh, penetrated through every single person in this community is what um, distinguishes it from 
different revolutions or different movements. Um, so we're psych- all psychologically. Psychologically, yeah. we're all um, we're at another level. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean this is this is really silly, but um, you realize that like in general, people are kinder. You know, I don't know whether it's been just this past month or not, but you know, when you're driving down the road or um, or crossing the road, even you know, usually you might have difficulty, uh, you know, <laughs> crossing the road. <laughs> Some might might not want to stop, but this is it's different. You know, especially if you're if you're carrying the flag, forget it. I mean, they'll honk at you and, and wave and. That is sustainable long term. That this maybe. I mean, why not? What, 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 sorry. What I was going to say was, I think that she's pointing to a newfound sense of social responsibility. That I have a role. Mm. I can slow down exactly. for a, bad, a, a, to a, a pedestrian. If I expect others and my politicians to behave a certain way, mm. the change starts from me. And well, that's I, interesting. And I think yeah. that's kind of that's kind that's yeah absolutely so it's um, basically a very ground up moment where even individuals are experiencing their own joy Mm -hmm. individually that that translates nationally into something else Mm -hmm. and their own responsibility I have a role I've got to do my part yeah but again just to ask ask it in maybe a different way do you think time will affect us that now we're if we're in December and not else, nothing else has really happened, do you sense that that will just fade? Or is that something permanent? That people now treat each other fundamentally differently than they did six weeks ago? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a and tricky specul- question, but I, I hope but I, so. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, no, I mean, I find, I find that if this were ever to change and people were to be kinder or more considerate of mm. each other, uh, I think anyway, in trying to capture that, this would be a great start. You know, okay. even yeah. if it might happen gradually, I think that this is this is the spark that right. was needed to get uh, the wheel rolling in the right direction. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that the economic reality will change things. Yeah. But I mean, this is a very pessimistic thing to say, but I think there are going to be a lot more people unemployed, so they're going to have more time to protest. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, but it's tricky in that. The economic reality is what it is, and are the people, I mean, we're all going to feel it. We're started to. And are they going to blame the protests for it, or are they going to see the protests as a byproduct of it? That right. they're angry at all these mistakes and all these transgressions, yeah. um, and that's what led to these people saying, enough is enough. We're watching you. If you're not going to change, we're going to make a change. So are they going to see it that, are, are the people affected going to see it that way and, right. and sort of get angry at the protesters, or are they going to blame the protesters for the continued stagnation? Right. So I'm not sure how that's going to turn out. Mm. That actually feeds into another topic I wanted to ask you guys. Just in terms of owning a, a cafe, a library, a, a space that just requires customers to interact with, a small business owner in Hamra and Wardir, are you optimistic that something like this is sustainable given the economic situation and and I mean it in, a, in both both cautiously hopeful for change and also maybe nervous with the economic deterioration would you put the burden on the revolution should this be impacted or do you put it on the, the state and what we've been going through the last 30 years I I'm not sure is the reality in yeah. terms of will we survive 
Mm-hmm. We will, we will, if we're going to die, we will die a slow death, the last breath, for because we've we've created a home, a home for our staff, a home for our customers, a home for ourselves. And I ask you because even as somebody who does not own a small business, I've seen protests often of people sort of demanding their wages that they can't get because the businesses have no money or for that matter, employees being laid off, should they go protest? I know that this hasn't happened here, but I mean, is there any nervousness with the rapid decline? And and your position as a sort of as a small business owner? Business has been cut by more than 50%, I think I can comfortably say. Okay, um, and that's because of recent events, not in- Since, uh, since October 17th, and but but it was declining, and yeah. but we have a very loyal, and like we have so many record loyalists, we have a loyal customer base, so I would say that, I mean, I mean, the economy was getting tighter and tighter mm-hmm. and tougher and yeah, tougher. Yeah, we were on a decline. Right. Not yeah. not and like a rapid one that we were like, oh, no, my God, we're going to shut our mm-hmm. doors. Now it's there. But the reason I keep pushing on this is I'm wondering the patience of the average business owner. Because you, you are the more patient, more hopeful, and you're willing to bear the burden. But I'm just wondering the patience of the average individual that supports the revolution but has no money. I think that, to be fair, we are able to be... Uh, more patient. It's not a matter of being impatient because I don't. Th- I think those people are patient. Yeah. They just can't. And right now, our customers have made it possible for us to continue. Mm-hmm. Our landlord, not so much, but we'll see. We're going to talk to him. <laughs> but we'll see. You know, the the reality of the the new the new the current economic period of Lebanon hits everybody at different times. Right. And the the. When, when does it sink in for me is different yeah. when it sinks in for you is different when it sinks in to our landlord sure. and to our staff mm. yeah. so we're going to not impose but make a collective decision together mm. um, you know we can we can pay full wages but that means we can't sustain a year of this right. we can pay less um, but it's a hard economic reality and I, yeah. I mean I, I felt I felt that that was the, the true character of what we feel we've built with our community here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the same way, Bob? Yeah. Um, actually, I when before October 17th, mm-hmm. uh, we were on an economic decline, you know, uh, nationwide. Not that is part of the reason this yeah. happened anyway. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, if not the chief reason. Mm-hmm. And so we'd been talking for months about you know what's going to happen next year, and yeah. so when uh, uh, when it all when it started October seventeenth and lasted this long, you know we had to revisit certain conversations mm-hmm. and certain scenarios. If this were to happen, what would we do? And yeah. you know, and because it's um, right now it's one business and it's yeah. not multiple outlets and multiple and an and empire that we'd have to make some rash deci- decisions on right, right. Um, it's a little bit different um, so we're, we're trying to treat it in a way where we can maintain the community maintain yeah. our customers uh, make sure our staff still has a job in two months right, um, right. so we are taking small measures and we really I mean don't know what's going to happen between the beginning of the year and the spring I mean who knows so, so it is. It is there in the background that the, the, the this combination of economic decline and, and stagnation that now goes back years, and also the fact that the revolution has, for better or worse, contributed to the rapid fall. Not blaming the revolution for it, mm-hmm. but that these two things will probably impact enough people to maybe potentially hesitate on long-term 
instability? Well, the, the, I think the most destabilizing factor right now is mm. the banks. People not yeah. being able to draw, people not being, people getting their credit limits changed. On an individual level, has that impacted you guys as just operating a small business? Has that sort of fed yeah. into the... Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, luckily with a restaurant, there's a cash <coughs> element to it, but the, and our distributors all want cash, and... Right. But we also have a lot of our customers that can't withdraw cash, so they're paying credit cards. And then yeah. you want to pay your staff, and a lot of them want cash now. And and for us, I think Dima and I, our priority is our staff. Yeah. That we want to make sure that they can um, have a livelihood that they can depend on to help their families. Because if they're stressed and worried, yeah. it doesn't. I mean, we want we want this to be a place where they can excel. And if you have. Yeah. Um, worries at home that are just burdens that are too heavy to carry. You can't. So, yeah, we might be behind uh, running the show here, but at the end of the day, they are what's keeping this place afloat. So, right. I mean, we owe it to them to try to maintain this environment and see how long, uh, yeah. how long it can go on for. But I understand it in sort of like a collective ability to bear some of the burden together mm. and I think all of us are feeling that in different ways that we're all sort of trying to level the pain so that we're not so that one person does not feel more disadvantaged than the other mm -hmm. now stepping away from that and just going to the sort of the the reasons you put this place on the map this kind of environment a tucked away but a visible enough home where people can come and feel comfortable working on their laptop, mm -hmm. or talking with their friends, or maybe having a quiet conversation in the terrace. And I wonder your opinion about a place like this, and our parents' stories about the old cafes of Hamra. And I know that's before our time, and I don't think any of us have... I've been to the Wimpy, but the Wimpy was after the war, not before, right? I never... I don't know what it was like before. I wandered once into Café de Paris, mm -hmm. and I realized it's not my scene. <laughs> I think the average age was 200. <laughs> but those are the old institutions, the horseshoe, um, the motka, the cafes that were associated with politics and vibrant discussion and expression. Do you think a place like this, that there's a thread between that generation's communal space, cafe and a place like Dark Bistro today. Do you see it as a reflection? Without a doubt. Mm. Um, I felt like when both Dima and I had lived in the U.S. and I felt like when I returned to Lebanon, I was, you know, I grew up during the Civil War. Where I grew up, I was born in the U.S. because of the Civil War here. Yeah. And I always had a longing for Lebanon and would read about the stories. And there was also a cafe, I think that used to be on Blue Street, if I'm not mistaken, called Faisal. Oh, that, Faisal, but that's, I mean, yeah. That, that, is, that was... And, from, and I yeah. studied politics and a lot of the political movements, cultural movements, artistic movements, political parties from throughout the Arab world yeah. were, were founded in a cafe in Hamra. Um, <laughs> because you could, you could think and speak freely here. Yeah. Um, and that was, that's very, that's what was very unique about Lebanon. And then when I returned, I felt like Hamra was taken over by Starbucks and Costa and the horseshoes and the wimpies and the motkas were, were you know, fading away. And then I had uh, been living in D.C. And um, when I was studying, I'd often go to cafes much like this that would have a bookshop. Mm -hmm. There's a one in particular, in particular I love that has a performance space where they do poetry readings and stuff. So you had that kind of place in mind. That, that was an inspiration. But it's mm -hmm. not like... 
I had actually met with him thinking we could do a Bus Boys in Lebanon. Uh-huh. And then that didn't really work. I wanted to do the same. Bus Boys and Boys Poets is based on an American poet named Langston Hughes. And that's not going to really translate here. We have our own poets. Um, so when I came back, this space came up for rent. There was someone living here. Mm-hmm. Um, I rented it out, and my best friend Dima moved back, who's a brilliant architect who had so, worked on many a hotel and a restaurant. Oh, so you guys, you knew each other before mm-hmm. yeah. starting up shop? Yeah, we've known each other since we were like 18. Yeah. From the States? No, from here, actually. Okay. Yeah. From here. Um, and we just, we've kept in touch over the years. Yeah. We could. Uh, yeah. When I, mean, I rented when I rented the space, I brought Dima. I remember we were standing over here, and I said we're going to make this rest of this restaurant together. She just asked me to come and have a look at it from uh, from a design perspective. Okay. And so as soon as I came in and I saw this beautiful house, yes. you know, I turned to her and I said, you know, I'm not going to work on this. I'm going to be part of this. Yeah. Find a way. Find a way to make that work. I'm glad you actually you deliberately wanted to recreate something that you heard of before which was that kind of scene in Hamra. Right. Well, be I would say not necessarily recreate, but be inspired by mm-hmm. and allow a space for th- yeah. that those exchange of ideas. Right. Well, I have to say, and also 10 years ago, <clears throat> when we were having that discussion, like, you know, what is it that we can do here that could be different? And, you know, she was working as a journalist. I was working as a designer here. Yes. And, um, and we talked about how cool would it be to open a restaurant. Yeah. And then Rima said, yeah, and how cool would it be if there was a bookshop in the restaurant? <laughs> and I was like, wow, you yeah, that would, be, that would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, but, but for me personally, I had no idea what that would look like. Right. Also, right. I mean, we, we push each other and fill our gaps for each other in different ways. Like mm-hmm. the, maybe the month or two before we opened, I was already so overwhelmed and spent. I said, Dima, maybe we don't need a bookshop. She's like, no, no, a bookshop is central. And if it wasn't for her push, there wouldn't have been a bookshop. Oh. You know, so it's, it's a, it's it's truly, it's, a, yeah. it's truly, in every sense of the word, a complete partnership. And Haider was part of it from the beginning, wanting yeah. to have a photography space to the, celebrate photography and, Ramzi, and have an institution. Ramzi and I, um, uh, he has an NGO called Zakira that mm-hmm. I was a part yes. of. And he had um, rented upstairs um, and started that in Musawwad. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had also worked together as journalists at AFP. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, I was still working as a journalist. Um, and so, I mean, there, there is a synergy between mm-hmm. upstairs and downstairs. And so he was definitely... And still is, you know, there's a part of it from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sorry. Go yeah. No, and, and just that uh, each one of us brings something different to the table. Right. And uh, it's just created a, this, you know, really great balance uh, over the years that made this place be what it is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because it's almost a decade now. Mm-hmm. We're approaching a decade. And you've been able to ride out instability. Mm-hmm. which I think is quite striking. And I, and I wonder about places like this that survive, because we know that the, the cafes of Hamra did pers- they persisted even during the war. Mm-hmm. Everyone I've spoken to has memories of Hamra, fond memories are from the late 70s and early 80s, mm-hmm. and I find that always striking. Mm-hmm. To me, that you should be running away from Hamra. No, on the contrary, Hamra survived. That, that part of Hamra survived. And I hope this institution, I like to call it that, oh. uh, is, <laughs> this, this uh, node <laughs> also survives. Um, the notion of expression, whenever I come here, I see a lot of familiar faces, 
because I've seen them either corresponding on TV for different outlets. I know them because I recognize either that their, their face is attached to an article that they published. Most of the time they're conversing about politics. Some are locals, some are not. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, a place like this today, do you think the, this blend of technology and also just the fact that people still talk to each other face to face, do you think any of this has changed the way we interact with what's happening? Mm. And I mean this in terms of just the way information originates and the way people interact with information. I try to think of the 1970s, being a correspondent, right? And I don't imagine Dar Bistro, because it's mm -hmm. just impossible. <laughs> mm -hmm. I imagine something maybe too romantic. As observers, do you sense that this has had any impact on the way we interact with all that is happening? I used to write for an international audience, and I have a... A, a fundamental pillar of Lebanon and what I think makes Lebanon so addictive mm. to foreigners and us uh, alike mm. is community. Yeah. We are very, we have very close ties with one another. And I remember when I was a journalist, I, um, the day Wissam Hassan was killed, I covered it. And so this is already after you opened? Yeah, it was after I, I worked, I was a journalist uh -huh. and I was, we had this, we were, I opened this while I was still working. Right, right. And so, we, um, I went and covered it, and it was one of my, um, one of the sadder things I'd covered. I mean, there was like, got in the hospital, and there was, like, you know, it was, it happened at the end of the school day, and kids were coming home from school, and I remember this one particular kindergartner who, like, had a bloody shirt from her, from her mom's blood, and her, her mom, her mom had been making lunch, and her window, uh, broke, and her mom was having surgery, and this girl was still wearing this, like, Mickey Mouse t-shirt, and was covered with blood, and, and we didn't know, by the time I left Ashrafi that day, we still didn't know that it was an assassination. Right. Like the information yeah, hadn't made it. Yeah. And and if there was something, I mean, an assassination is horrible and scary, but there was a different element of horrible and scary had it been a random terrorist attack in a Christian area. And no one knew how to interpret it. And I came, and I, I was going to come actually to file from here, and I was like, I expected there not to be a soul in the place. And I was really like, gutted by what I'd seen. And I got here, and the terrorist was full. Yeah, and the right. people were in different tables, had crowded around each other, and a lot of them were Arab journalists. Yes. And it was from them that I heard it was Hassan. Right. And in, in the car on the way here is when they confirmed it. And I went inside and, and filed that story, and I had the energy to, because of those people who were here to come together to coalesce, to talk about yeah. what they knew and how they felt. But there's something about this that I, I, I wonder from your perspective, because you, you see this all the time, that literally information is being written and spread from places like Dar Bistro. Not just this place, but all types oh, yeah, of cafes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, lots of cafes. And I just wonder what, maybe the role of the cafe is much more fundamental than we appreciate. We see many in interview here mm -hmm. um, during the early days of the... Of they have, they, they shoot their interviews here too. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And oh, so they actually, so that's even more, so the setting is Dar Bistro. Sometimes. Wow. Uh, it depends. It depends how they approach it. It depends. Yeah. Depends who it is. And it's not about this you know, place. And it's definitely it's not about the place. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's about them wanting to be in a safe environment. Right. And, uh, you know, want to put this together. So safe environment. And I'm guessing the word safe here is very, very wide. Because it's not just... Uh, 
it's not just correspondence mm-hmm. trying to get a. Oh, no, no, not, not that type yeah. of safety. Right, it's safe in terms of. Yeah, we don't have like a security. <laughs> yeah, it's not a security. <laughs> no, sorry, I didn't mean that. No, I meant it's, it's more than just the journalist wanting to spread their, uh, their, their story. It's that people feel safe to speak their mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. And more than that, it's that nobody really bothers you. No one, yeah. um, if, you're, if, you're, if there's an interview happening in the back, um, you don't feel like. You know, you're in a place where you're being watched or mm-hmm. you're being listened to or you're being judged. You know, and I think that is a fundamental shift from the 1970s because mm-hmm. those days, if you were meeting in a cafe to discuss politics, even though they were associated with politics, you were always careful. Yeah. And a lot of the times you weren't sure who was overhearing and you wanted to be extra careful, extra judicious about what you said. And or on the said contrary, it. you want to bring people over to your cause. Exactly. <laughs> you, you deliberately spread it right? yeah. as a platform. It seems like that has changed, that now this is actually, by default, it's a quiet environment, and at the same time, it's where you spread ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that juxtaposition is, is, is unique, and I think it's this time. So we're not... I, yeah, yeah, it is this time. And it's a sense of community. People don't want to be home alone with TV. Right, right. And I, I think there's an ecosystem that we're not appreciating. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's part of what's happening on the streets now. But mm-hmm. there is, and I think if you do turn off the internet in Dark Bistro, the revolution might stop. People, people will <laughs> spread. I don't go that far. But I guess. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> that's a huge compliment. I don't no, know if no, we're no. that central. There's a lot of cafes that will rise up that, with our true. internet. That's absolutely right. <laughs> now, our internet's not always great. Unfortunately. Uh, I mean, it's, although this is not a great plug for our restaurant, say that, but <laughs> truth of, being authentic, I, yeah. that's I mean, a I think it's good enough to handle at least 50 people on their laptops. Sure. So that's, I mean, that's all you need. Mm. As long as they're not <laughs> downloading gigabytes of information. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, just the other side to Dog Bistro, and I've been here several times where there have been storytelling events. And I know that, Rima, from what you told me, is that you helped co found Hakaya Storytelling Nights. I've been to these storytelling events with a mutual friend of ours. I was wondering. All these things that are now, I mean, they're synonymous with the name Dar Bistro. Did you think of these as part of it when you were opening? Or is this sort of like a natural thing where you're like, no, I can do maybe even more things. Now that I have this space, I can do something more on expression and creativity. I had, having been a journalist, um, and I primarily co- for a while covered Lebanon and then for a while covered Syria. Hmm. And um, you got to water down what you here and the best stories I heard never made it into the press and there were the personal stories and the part of me that's American was very influenced by the moth and this American life and so I had had this idea for Hakaya I think it was one of those things that grew organically that from sort of all our shared experiences also storytelling culture is part of Arab culture who doesn't have stories of our granddad's days and our parents' days and oh we walked down the street and this guy sold us an orange and he said this you know like there's all these amazing stories with lessons Um, so it was a combination of those things we wanted to bring as many voices together and hear them I was hoping to one day create a podcast um, but uh, right now we have a YouTube Hakaya storytelling channel where most of our stories are posted Um, and when we get around to it we translate them (laughs) um, in in subtitles Uh, but uh, lately a lot of them most of them I would say have been in English Um, some have been in Arabic and we've been trying to encourage the Arabic as well Um, so that was born from journalism 
that you wanted I, to get the other stories that are not journalism. Then, yeah, the yeah. human stories. Right, right. That were I mean, the particular one, there was one time I had gone to Ain al-Halwe, and I met Syrian refugees who were Palestinians from Syria. And the guy had an, an insane story. Who He had made, gone to Alexandria, got on a boat from Alexandria to Egypt. The boat was sinking. He was shipwrecked and tied. Like, it was like a Titanic, but in the Mediterranean. He was tied to, like, a plank of wood for three days. Yeah. And then the Egyptian Coast Guard found him, threw him in jail. Yeah. His parents had to pay for a plane ticket, and he said, "You have." A, they said, "You have a choice. We could fly to Syria, or fly to Beirut." And now he was living in a tent in Ain al-Hedway because he flew to Beirut. That didn't make it into a story. That would be a very thorough investigative article. I also think the yeah. impact when you hear someone get up and tell a story, yeah. uh, whether it's it's the way that they animate it, the way that they tell it, whether they get emotional. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what really makes it so special. It's not like you're you're hearing it or you're reading the story uh, in the paper. Yeah. You're actually hearing hearing it from the source, um, seeing a reaction. Um, and you know it's a small space, so uh, there's this this energy uh, that goes into it, and it's actually it comes out really. Uh, very telling and very beautiful. I mean, that guy literally said uh, he, he thinks his three nights floating in the sea were scarier than bombs dropping on the Yarmouk camp <laughs> in Damascus. Like, I could, what is that like to float at sea for three days and not knowing if you will ever make it to shore, not knowing what direction shore is, and yeah. being thirsty and hot and sunburned? It's a very comfortable place to do all of these things. And I love that on occasion I'll walk in and I'll see either the younger generation sharing stories and you see them doing what I would consider to be wonderful as someone who's a little older now mm -hmm. is that you're not watching stories on Instagram TV mm -hmm. or for that matter you're not just glued to Facebook all the time you're sitting and, and interacting without the technology mm -hmm. right. and I think that's fundamental it's like modern day Hakawati <laughs> yeah in a, in a place that you feel comfortable sharing those stories too and not, not every place has that component yeah it's a very vulnerable thing yeah. to, to get up there and say hey this happened it's something you would do at home. Yeah, and with I, and friends. I think, with or, friends. Yeah. I think you guys have literally created a home. Not to play on the word dot, but it really does feel like a home. Where we're sitting right now is so comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably take a nap here. <laughs> I think people have fallen asleep on these sofas. What we're seeing on a superficial level and a structural level, the role of women in Lebanon today. I'm not talking about just women protesters leading marches. It's symbolically something special, but I always wonder that what we're seeing, is there a structural shift in the making where women that have been already important and center and front and center, that they're now really equal in Lebanon? And I ask this for you subjectively in your own experience. Do you feel a sense that there's something in the mix that you will be in a better country for you as women later as a result of this revolution? I don't think that they've changed. Mm. It's just now they've, now they're being heard. Now someone's listening. Mm. So I think the role of women has been the same throughout, but now they're getting the recognition that they deserve through the actions. Also, because mm. of our economic plight, 
um, and the traditional Lebanese families, the male is the breadwinner, and he's had to live away from here. So yeah. a lot of them have chosen to leave their the moms behind with their kids to grow up back home. Right. And so the role of the woman through society, through these generations of the men leaving, have also, the women have taken less traditional roles and have had to work for economic reasons or have had to make household decisions when that they wouldn't have otherwise made. Um, I think the Lebanese woman is strong and educated. I think a lot has to change for us to be equal, particularly because legally. Because of this revolution or, or just in general that things have been changing for the better? I think things have been changing for the better, but legally, I mean, I um, got married this year to a non-Lebanese. An issue like your husband, who's not Lebanese, and your children that for the time being will not be Lebanese. Do you see these kinds of things changing as a result of the loosest term here, disenfranchised groups demanding their dignity? Do you think that something like that is on the horizon? Yes, I think there are louder calls for that. I think, you know, one of the protests I went to in D.C., I started protesting there before I came back. There was a woman who, with her, I, I believe American husband, but Western husband and child, and she, they were they were listing out their demands, and she, she said that as a demand and broke down crying, right, like standing next to me. Um, I think that's been a really fundamental demand. There is just something not right about that. But you see that on the horizon because of what's happening now. Yeah, if it changes soon, I think it's because of this push. Okay, do you think so? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it would be uh, one of their priorities, mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's it's uh, it's on the list and eventually it would be something that would happen. Not on the priority among the average protester. Right. Okay. No, no, not the, the protest, but it's not on the priority list for the government. For the government, yeah. Um, so, but I think, like Rima said, this is, uh, it, if it happens, um, it'll be because of this uh, this movement now. The movement, the people on the streets, the, the students, they, it feels to me like they're speaking a language that the government just does not understand. Like, literally, yeah. I feel like we need to get translators. Uh -huh. and it's like people on the streets are speaking Greek and the people in the government are speaking, like, ancient Greek. Right. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that there's nothing in common. And that's not necessarily <laughs> age, even though the average protester is quite young. But there are young MPs. We have young ministers. Yeah. Some of them are fairly young. I mean, so it's not it's not just age. It's there's a it's like a, a, way a schema, <laughs> like a structure, the way yeah. the way they see things running, and an inability to see it differently. Now I want a final point, and this is maybe the most sensitive issue. I'm asking anyone I know the same question because I'm trying to see how far people are willing to shed the old way. Um, and I don't mean the political class only, I mean all of us. Lebanon has been, and I mean this quote-unquote Lebanon, all of us have been affected by power sharing among communities, whether we personally identify with those communities all the time or some of the time, that's separate. But this country has a way of governing. And we're roughly the same age. I think we're the same person. We interact <laughs> the same with people. I think we're extremely secular in our public life. And I think uh, it would be odd to think of us as otherwise. Mm -hmm. I agree. But I wonder, this generation, when they say 
they're against sectarianism and they want a secular state. Do you see that as happening down the road because of these demands? Or are you more cautious that that might not be the right way for Lebanon? And the simple fact that we've had confessional power sharing for so long that it may be part of the reason people like us do mingle, that we do know each other and we, we there is a pluralism that is unusual and you put us in a different country in the Middle East, the chances of this being that comfortable are less. In Lebanon, they're much more. And I always wonder where that comes from. Is it because we're a sectarian state? That we have the breathing space among communities? Or am I thinking like a dinosaur here? Um, I, just, I mean it on a, on a purely, are, are, are we willing to abandon the old comfort zone, the old inertia of sectarianism? I don't think it's black or white. Hmm. You know, I think just the way that, you know, going back full circle uh, on what's happening with the revolution, whether something's going to come out of it, I think, you know, gradually uh, things will shift. It's just at a very, very slow pace. Um, Is that a good thing to, to someone like you who would probably be more secular in lifestyle anyway? I... Um, my confessional identity, if you will, is Druze. And I come from a society where um, I was there was no pretty much zero religion in my household. There were morals, there were um, sort of traditions, but they weren't tied to religion. So it's I will admit that it's easier for me to shed the religious part because it was never a fundamental part of my daily life. Yeah. Um, I think that there are other Druze who are quite at the other end of the spectrum. And when I first moved to Lebanon in the 90s, um, I, would, I, I took dance classes. And I, there was a girl who was also up there, and she, she had said to me, I had never met a Druze or a Muslim before. So I actually would argue the opposite, that the confessional system has kept us further apart, and us in the cities, because for economic reasons, for, for social reasons, for work reasons, have mingled. Some of us have seen a need to fight the the, the secular uh, identity, the the sectarian identity, and I think when we say sectarianism, I would make, say that that's akin to racism. It's not about preserving your identity at home. I mean, I'm I'm a Lebanese American. I am American in my household. That does make me less American if in my household I eat different food or I behave a different way. Sorry, yeah, uh, but do you feel in, in, a, in a way like this kind of it's not in your orbit, therefore it's okay. In other words, secularism will not harm you because you're fairly secular. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's a mentality also. Yeah. And um, it's a household mentality. It's who your friend, the, the circle your friends are, where mm. you've lived. Mm. Uh, it makes a difference whether you were born and raised and lived here your entire life yeah. versus having... Uh, maybe lived abroad for whatever reason it was that we were living abroad. Yeah. Um, the interactions that you have, you know, the, the more diverse the community is that you're interacting with, uh, the less it's an issue. I mean... Um, and the richer the community. I mean, I, I really believe the, like multiculturalism and multi-confessionalism, if you will, there's so much to learn and to grow and to... But I'll, I'll say this, is, and um, this is very subjective. When I saw these sort of, in a way, showcase corruption trials on TV, we saw two names bring... There were two previous prime ministers mm -hmm. who were being accused of corruption. Mm. 
my secular mind did not identify any relationship to them as a as a as part of my community. On the contrary, I feel like they had nothing to do with me. Right. I wonder if this will be applied to every community. Mm-hmm. And then I caught myself sort of in the trap. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, wait. If I, I shouldn't think, be thinking that. Right, but that's but, some, that's coming from somebody who, without a sectarian bone in me. Yeah. You know, so I, I mean, in, in the, I automatically went there without even appreciating that that's... That's the structure of the country. Well, the structure of the country ties your sectarian identity to your political identity. So it, it was, it seems like a witch, I can, from the way you're describing it, it seemed like a witch hunt from one political um, side of all this toward another. And, and I think the more on the, on the sectarian, though, that if they're going to go, and this is theoretical, right, if they're going to go after, let's say, the Druze, will the Druze demand Christians be put away as well. And if you put the Christians away, will the Muslim, will they demand Muslims are imprisoned? Sunni, Shia, and then what about the Armenians? Will they have to bear the burden? And I mean, that's not one step away. So will people at the end go back to their own? The way that Lebanon has somehow, for some reason, and I think, I mean, it's beyond all of us. It's that, that's just the way things have been for so long. No. I don't think this time around. Uh-huh. I think something has really changed. Yeah. And, and that's not justice. Mm-hmm. justice if, if just because there are, you know, 10 criminals from one sect doesn't mean there is an, actu- there is an equal in, um, number of criminals from another sect. Yeah. Or, and criminals is a strong word, but, you know, people who violated the law, violators. Yeah. And so, I mean, I would argue that, that maybe that's what our traditional Lebanese mind has seen. But that is not what we're seeking today. We're seeking truth. We're seeking justice, um, point blank. Um, and I and I would say, I mean, it is a unique thing that is not tied to a lot of countries. It's tied to Rwanda, and yeah. it's tied to here, where your um, where your confessional or your tribal identity is tied to a religious stance. If you if you're born, people assume what your stance is before you can even speak. Yeah. 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 I think and you're assumed to be or act a certain way. Yeah. Based on where you were born and who you were born yeah. to. I think this, this slogan has saved us from a lot. And I think it just it kind of came out of nowhere and it's been used to great effect. Mm-hmm. I think that has been the response to violence at times in, in downtown. That has been the response to what you're describing too, which is this is purely a matter of justice and no one is off limits. But at the end of the day, I still wonder, and that's maybe because it's just inertia, or maybe it's having watched previous attempts at reform or revolution go back to the old ways. And I wonder, maybe the younger generation doesn't have that, and therefore they don't. They don't. Well, they weren't really involved. Yeah. They, they, they were never. They, they were not. They're not interested. Yeah. Why it's different now? It's like. Um, Everyone is interested, and if you don't know what the laws are in the country, they're mm-hmm. educating themselves. Yeah. You know, whether it's through talks, whether uh, there's there's an interest in, in knowing about what the rules and regulations are, yeah. who can be part of the government, who can't be. I mean, I'll take it from, from my perspective. I mean, I've learned a lot this past month, things that I wouldn't initially uh, have known details about before, um, seeking you know, answers to some of the questions I had. Yeah. And it applies, it applies to a lot of people. Yeah. 
And also, our generation and our parents' generation have uh, faced a lot of heartbreak when it comes to Lebanon. Yes. It's a place that's just, it's intoxicating, um, and it can be so much. Yeah. Um, and there are so many, there are so many factors working against it. Primarily, these types of things are yeah. our own mentality and our um, our own politics that are that show more loyalty to external forces at times rather than our than our own development and growth. Yeah. Um, so, I I'm trying to also temper my knee jerk reaction of being maybe a skeptic when it comes to Lebanon. Mm-hmm. I really see different hope, but by tempering it, I'm looking at the long term. Yeah. And so if I think we will see change, yeah. we fundamental change in five to ten years. I think we will see incremental change between now and then. And I think yes. it will be bumpy and there will be scapegoating and there will yeah. be unfairness and mm-hmm. accusations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we'll get there and this is, this is a huge push and a huge inspiring start. Mm. I think that's a nice yeah. optimistic way of... Very much. <laughs> I like that. I like that too. And I, I also think that the individual is stronger than the group for some reason for the moment, that there's an individualism that has taken hold, a citizen that has not existed before. Exactly. And With the social responsibility we were talking about mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and these little examples, I think, are resonating among individuals, that mm-hmm. they're not thinking in groups. Mm-hmm. That could be temporary. Mm-hmm. Maybe both will emerge. Maybe we'll have something like, something that combines the best of both. Mm-hmm. Lebanon doesn't have to be this way forever. It doesn't have to be the complete opposite either. There has to be space for everybody. Yeah. And right now, the the seculars don't feel like they have a space. Right. You can't legally get married here. Yeah. If you if you believe you want to, if you fall in love with someone from a different sex. You can get married not civilly. Not, not civilly. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, if, right, unless right. somebody converts, right, you can't exactly. get married here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Civil, you can't have a civil right. marriage. Yeah. So I mean, right now, but also a secular state needs to not be an extremist secular state. It has to be have have space for religion. Right. Um. So there's a combination there, and it's a dance, and we'll get there. Other, like you know, it's been an evolution of many countries all over the world. Yeah. Look at that. I think, uh, and I, a friend of ours, Nadim Shahadi, said that Lebanon skipped the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, because it, it, it missed out on the brutal form of secularism that the rest of the Middle East went through. Mm-hmm. But I hope we don't skip on the 21st century either. <laughs> we don't need 200 years of coma. Yeah. Anyway, on that, on that note, thank you, Rima. Thank, thank you, Dima. Thank you. I want 10 years from now to talk to you guys about this place again. Oh, we hope oh, so. Don't, don't go away. <laughs> We'd be honored. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.